This is the Pain Matters Podcast with Professor Laura Mosley, hosted by Master Sessions. Follow the podcast and you will get the podcast as soon as it is released. Thanks everyone, take it easy and we're looking forward to your comments. Thank you uh, for joining me again, Lorma. Thanks for having me, Bart. And, I'm still getting uh, used to this uh, this rather large microphone that I bought for this podcast. <laughs> it, it feels like it's sort of a real barrier between you and me because it's in front of you on the <laughs> on the screen. Yeah, well, it's everything for the audio, right? So just to make it sound fancy and good, I think it works out pretty well. So um, yeah, we did it. we've announced it in the last episode, getting to um, into the details of your your PhD and your early work. So how did that all happen um, in your career so far? Uh, yeah, so it's um, it wasn't very intentional, to be honest. Like I, um, I I'm very pleased that uh, Wendy Coe, who was one of my lecturers in my undergraduate physiotherapy degree uh really encouraged me to do honors despite me not wanting to be a physio at that stage and she said oh you might want to do research one day and i said i will not want to do research one day uh and uh she she was uh, really generous to me she went out of her way to, to make sure that i could do that and um i was really pleased she did because it came as a, a an unexpected development i think there were there were a couple of things that were going on for me i was uh, i was speaking last episode i think about uh, that slow discovery that understanding at a deeper level not understanding what should you do when you're in pain but understanding how does pain work uh, almost like this deep level understanding and now i have a whole different vernacular and and understanding to talk about this stuff but at the time i it just struck me that you know we learned that how you understand how the world works changes your decisions and how you how you go about solving problems uh so that was happening for me and i'd uh done a my version of a clinical trial and uh then i treated I treated someone um who I should have realized this. This is this is very bad reflection on my clinical skills in this moment anyway. And it's a bit embarrassing to be honest, but but uh, I I didn't find out that this fellow was a senior academic at the local university. And um I treated him, I remember I remember him quite well. I remember I don't remember his face very well, but I remember his back quite well. Uh and his glutes and and uh his leg and the way his legs and the way he stood it's just funny isn't it as a physio i guess you tend to remember how people move quite a lot and um and he had what i found to be quite a mysterious very chronic very disabling back and leg pain um not in a nice easy to understand distribution and i remember having some pretty weird theories about what could be happening um and I was in that space of trying to explain why I thought I probably wasn't the best person to help him because I don't think it's a case of, well, he'd seen all these people who had worked to get weak muscles stronger and short muscles longer. And uh, 
and a range of other things and acupuncture he'd done a lot of that and dry I don't think he was dry anything I don't know if that was even around anyway I said to him this is this is what could be happening and uh, I'm not the person to help you and uh, he he never returned for another treatment uh, which is clear evidence that I had cured him in one treatment fixed him completely <laughs> Uh, no, clearly not. So he he got back in touch with me uh, about three months later to say that he'd you know he'd looked me up on the university system and uh, my academic performance was something that he was interested in and would I consider doing a PhD if the university gave me a scholarship to do it? And that was the first consideration I'd had, and it was pretty attractive because I was very naive about what what it meant to be a PhD student. I thought I would, you know, sit in cafes and uh, read, you know, read old novels and get a woolen cardigan with leather patches on the elbows and take up smoking a pipe or something like that. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a whirl. I'll have a, <laughs> I'll have a crack at that. And uh, I began, yeah, I began my PhD through the Department of uh, Anesthetics at Sydney Uni. Um, alongside that experience, I guess, while I was deciding what to do, I, uh, I took a trip up the East coast of New South Wales, uh, and I thought it would be you know, in, in my less responsible days, I thought it would be good to be able to make this a tax deductible trip. Um, you know, when tax, I saw tax as nothing but theft by the government. Now, of course, but I see it as going to healthcare and roads and hospitals and schools, <laughs> Uh, but as a as a 27, 28 year old, I thought oh, I could get out of a bit of tax here. So I found a conference that fitted and I went to one session of the conference and uh, it was very warm and I, I went in without shoes and I think I might have had dreadlocks and there was a fellow on stage talking uh, like a like a theatre, theatrical performance, uh, the way he was talking and moving and trying to get something out of this crowd that really was not very responsive and uh, I, I sat down in the only empty seat in the front row and I became transfixed with what this fellow was talking about and the general uh, message that that he was delivering uh, from from a place so, so for he had been a very influential uh, sort of manual therapy type dude for for uh, at least a decade before then probably more than that um and here he was imploring this crowd of manual therapists to think beyond his phrase was think think above the foramen magnum which is the big hole at the bottom of your skull that the spinal cord goes through and uh, clearly implying start thinking about the brain here folks this amazing organ that doesn't seem to get much airtime in physiotherapy practice. And that was his, that was his message um, that I picked up. And at the end of his talk, he finished, you know, said, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I was so impressed by this that I, I out loud, I said, all right, and started clapping very loudly. And then I noticed I was the only person in the room clapping for about the first five or six seconds. And then slowly the claps came and 
Uh, and he came down to me straight away and you know, thanked me for being so enthusiastic. And uh, that was that was when I first connected with David Butler. And David has since then remained a, you know, a beacon for, I think, for the field and the wider field of pain management to, to keep pushing, to, to not be satisfied with the way things are. And I think that that experience of being re almost reignited, like I mentioned last episode, that you know, there were these times where when I was at school, I loved science. And when I was a physiotherapy student, I loved the biology and found some of the other stuff a bit confusing. And then I'd see these athletes that were extraordinary, extraordinary biomechanically and getting chronic pain. And I've had these almost recurring excitement about possibility and, and opportunity that we have as extraordinarily complex creatures uh, with extraordinarily complex social and, and other connections. And I think that that moment was probably enough to tip me over into not letting go of that excitement, not uh, almost choosing that when the despair sets in, uh, or, or maybe more accurately, to, or choosing to not let the despair set in because of the hope and opportunity that is is always there. It's it's always mixed in amongst all the really challenging patients and the sad, ah, oh, such such challenging lives that some patients have. But all of those patients have this extraordinary, complex, yeah, but extraordinary biology that is by definition responsive. Uh, and I think Dave's imploring of the crowd to say, come on, come on, physios, let's let's take it up a notch. Uh, I did. I certainly did. And and yeah, and I and I went back to where I was living at the time and Sydney said, Yep, I'll do that PhD. And uh, uh yeah, and, and then I learned how to do research over the next three years with some very, very important influences on that on that journey. Yeah, so from a starting career and getting getting someone like David, and I think many people can relate to this. So if you don't, if you know David Butler, you definitely see some YouTube work. You probably get an idea of where that sits. But it's been so amazing over the over the years that something that was overwhelmingly biomechanically fused were dominating, which was sort of for the time was quite interesting, but there was, there was knowledge that actually was already there to suggest mm. that the brain is a, is a key organ. The complexity didn't it push you back. So, oh my God, this is so complex. This may be too risky or too complex to just get into research in this area. Uh, no, it, it didn't around research. In fact, it's what, it was part of driving me towards research. Mm. I think. I think as a as a clinical physiotherapist, uh, the complexity of the human. I mean, I'd, I'd always been struck by the complexity of the human. I mean, I'm, I'm a complex person, but, and and my own complexity and I, oh, you know, we all there are all there's aspects to all of our stories that um, we don't show off to the world. But you know, I'd. Uh, some of the challenges that that I face because of experiences 
yeah, they were very difficult to work out. Uh, so as a clinician, uh, that complexity and the challenge that a, that a healthcare professional faces when trying to help someone, uh, sometimes those challenges are really significant. And I think I felt as a clinical physio at the time, yeah, that complexity made me want to run away. No, run away, that's probably not quite right. You know, put up my hands and say, no, this is too hard. This is too hard. And, uh, you know, it's great that we have interdisciplinary pain management programs because together, you know, a few a few people um, putting their heads together will we'll be able to sort out that complexity a bit more easily, I think. But for me, the complexity drove me towards this thing that I loved called science and learning how to exploit science to slowly unpick the complexity uh, and to be able to exploit that complexity. I mean, the the um, the publishers of of my books repeatedly uh, remind me not to use this phrase too often, and that is uh, our fearful and wonderful complexity. Uh, but I love the phrase because that probably captures your question, right? Like the complexity is is frightening, uh, but extraordinarily opportunistic and, and full of possibility. And as a scientist, that's that's your bread and butter. You know, you you say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna work out as much as we can about that complexity to use it for good. If that makes sense. Yeah, and it's great being a scientist and, and appreciating the complexity of the human because it tells us, uh, well, it tells me anyway, you're not going to run out of a job. You know, you're going to have a job for a while because this is really hard. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to find out. So so can you just bring me to the first, your first paper or let's say your research project, what you've learned yeah and, and and why they got you to the next publication <laughs> well, the um my first paper was actually uh five years before that clinical trial i mentioned in in the previous episode um i was a new physiotherapist and i was working with surfboat rowers and uh was at the academy of sport and and i i was i was amazed at how much physical work they could do when they were so out of condition compared to the elite flat water rowers I was dealing with. Um, so that was my first paper, something around injury and surfboat rowers. Uh, and aside from my honours paper, which was, how's this for a title, Bart? My, the, my first ever published work, 1996, I think it was published from my honours degree. It was called three-dimensional kinematics of the rear foot during stance phase of walking in healthy young adult males. There you go. I still remember the title. Uh, but that, I mean, I learned stuff during that process that, that's been helpful throughout my research career. But my first um, study within within my PhD, uh, so that I guess I'd, in my mind, I feel like that's the first study that was truly scientific. You know, like, like that might not be fair, but it was... Uh, part of a process where I had expert scientists teaching me how to do things, you know, how to do science. And 
Uh, I've used the phrase before, but uh, my my PhD supervisors were Paul Hodges, uh, the walking cortex, or now the running cortex, who rumor has it tried to forget something in 1996, but he couldn't do it. You know, he's, he's an extraordinarily knowledgeable and clever person uh, and a great scientist. And uh, Simon Gandivia, uh, again, an, uh, one of Australia's leading motor physiologists, uh, does excellent work. And Michael Nicholas, uh, probably, probably Australia's leading pain psychologist in, in the clinical field and uh, amazing group of supervisors who collectively taught me how to do the process of science. So I, I feel like one of the first studies that came out of my PhD uh, that captures what I was learning in my PhD uh, was a study looking at uh, what what happens when uh, to to the way your brain seeks to control movement around your trunk when you expect any moment to receive a painful shock uh, and uh, the reason that I think of that study is that I uh, I simultaneously think of how really how generous Paul was in taking me on as a PhD student uh, where Oh, we were in the middle of transversus and multifidus land at that stage in the mid nineties or late nineties was. Um, and I just, I just, it just did not fit to me that uh, that could be the whole story and nothing but the story. And and I, I think Paul would say the same. I think I should have him on. Let's have him on one day, Bart. We'll ask him um, if he'll come on. I hope, I hope he would. He's a very, very busy man, but uh you know, I, I felt like that can't be the whole story. And I went to Paul and said, would you, you know, would you supervise my PhD to investigate some of that stuff? And he he said, sure. And I will forever be Paul Hodges' first PhD student. And I'm very, you know, very chuffed to, to have that very elite status because he's had so many and he's such a beacon. Uh, but but the paper itself was was born out of the possibility that this this pattern of activity we were seeing around transversus abdominis and the multifidus um, these are trunk muscles uh, using a paradigm that you you give a postural perturbation so you you do a movement which means that your brain has to turn on muscles around your trunk before your arm moves so that you don't throw your body in the wrong direction. Uh, and they're called, because they happened before the movement, they're called anticipatory postural adjustments. Um, so this experiment asked the question almost in the reverse direction. Like the field was pretty enamored with the idea that problems in anticipatory postural adjustments were the cause of, or were a significant cause of back pain. Uh, and this study asked the question, could expectation of back pain be causing the changes in postural adjustments? And I think it was a groovy study uh, and uh, it was a groovy result. So uh, gen in general, the, the experiment showed that when healthy, normal volunteers expect to have back pain any moment because of electrical, well, you know, they've got electrodes on their back that are going to zap them, they control their trunk in the same way that people with recurrent back pain who are pain-free at the time control their trunk. 
Uh, and so the obvious possible the, the obvious possible interpretation of that is that what we see in patients who are pain-free but have recurrent back pain problems uh, may be because their brain's protecting them just in case uh, and raise the possibility that what we're what we're seeing in these changes in postural adjustments may very well be a kind of biomarker of perceived threat to the back, something like that. Uh, now, that, that was a long time ago. That was uh, a study was, I guess, 23 years ago. Um, but it was the first, my first experience, I guess, of, of throwing out a hypothesis, testing it, with all the rigor that you can muster uh, and seeing what happens. And it's a, for anyone who does scientific experiments uh, out there listening, you will get it when I say it's a cool feeling when you answer a problem, you answer a question like that in a way where you let the data do the dancing. Uh, and yeah, you feel like, right, to the best of our knowledge, this, this is, true uh, and of course you, you want to replicate this stuff and some experiments i've done you know i've done multiple experiments getting consistent results and then someone else does the experiment and they get a different result and that's always a bit bit humbling but also reminds us of the complexity of stuff but that that experiment was for me cool experiment number one uh, of many more many more <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think the first one is sort of leading into an era of more research in the same area with Paul Hutchis, I presume. And I reckon that there was a point of where, where you started to do your own work. Was that even during your PhD? Are you were you already um, building up to? To let's say less multifidy and transverse abdominal uh, abdominus uh, uh, driven paradigms. Uh, so, did you sort of make that switch already during PhD, or we just came it later? Uh, I think I think it was probably there the whole time. I mean, I was I was also collecting clinical data, uh, clinical trials, and that's where Michael Nicholas, um, one of my other supervisors, was more involved in the treatment intervention in intensive we called it intensive educational and education about the neurophysiology of pain mm. uh, and there were RC, little rcts that became better as i learned more about how to do them um, the the transversus and multifidus type stuff really reflected paul's strengths and expertise at the time and he 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 was the world pioneer of of using these things as, mm. as biomarkers uh, for this population. Uh, probably, I mean, and, and he's you know, he he would probably pay that credit on to other people as well. That's the nature of Paul. But he, you know, he's a very very important person as far as our understanding of how how the trunk works, um, motor control. But I think that that it never. It grabbed me as a clinician in the mid nineties um, because it did sound pretty, pretty sensible and um, about stability of joints and things like that. Um, but it, it, I've, I've remained 
probably more intrigued by how the brain is is protecting us. Um, but I, I would see that you know multifidus behavior and transversal behavior, you know, all motor behavior reflects that. The work that I do now with elite athletes, or I've done the whole time with elite athletes, that's a big issue because performance is reduced when the system feels a need to protect itself, uh, which is good if it if it if it does need to protect itself, but not so good if it doesn't. So you can see still there is this part of your research you've done in your early career with Paul as well is still relevant. Is that right? So, so totally, yeah, totally relevant for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm still yes. doing work with Paul. <laughs> That's crazy. So could you give me like a very broad um, reason why this is still, still relevant, that early work and uh, maybe in, in the context of today and the knowledge that we have gained in the last 23 years? <laughs> well, I, you know, I definitely want to speak for the field and I, I definitely want to preface my answer with, you know, upfront, I'm, I'm not close to the world expert on motor control. Um, the reason that I think these paradigms are still relevant is that I think they give a really nice measurable window into what the brain is doing and and anticipating as the next step. Um, so, and you you can't fake multifidus activation before a movement. You know, you can't, um, it's a really nice biomarker, I think. So I think it's very relevant with that. I think that, you know, we, we should have Paul on because I think that, that Paul would, Paul would argue that there is a subgroup of people with musculoskeletal problems for whom motor control problems are contributing to their, their pain. And I think there's some, I think there's some merit in in that argument because we do know that if we practice any motor output, the activation thresholds for neurons in that cascade of command reduces. We, we get better at it. And uh, in a sense, we can develop motor habits, if you like. Um, and the the motor output for protection in the short term may not be optimal in the long term. And I, I think that would be the argument of some of the motor control people that uh, the, there are people for whom suboptimal uh, muscle activation patterns are contributing to a pain problem. That may be true. Uh, I'd, I, I probably, you know, to be honest, I probably still think the driver will be the the brain's evaluation that this body part needs some protecting. And for whatever reason, if that's not true, then that's where the suboptimality in my mind lies. But Paul's done beautiful work showing that if you, you know, if you train, if you do certain types of exercises, the activation patterns change, even when you go into functional movements and they become more stereotypical, nor stereotypically normal, which is probably good. Uh, but, I, uh, you know, there's no doubt that me, Paul, David Butler, Simon Gandivia, Michael Nicholas, 
uh, all of these people will say it's a complex system and not everyone is the same. In fact, everyone is slightly different. Mm, that's lovely said. Yeah, I know it's, it's a great to see this overview of your early career now. So people sort of understanding where things are coming from. And uh, today's um, clinic, I sometimes feel like early work has sometimes been in within the context of the history, if you like, or your early career, it makes sense, right? How you make some decisions and um, being being referenced for your early work is still great because I think that sort of acknowledge some of that work, but it's also when things have been replicated and proven like otherwise, uh, which is fine, obviously, because that's the that's the academic journey or the mm. uh, the research journey. So I think we, there's so much more here. Uh, we're going to finish this, and with I thought for people who are listening and are in their early career, either as a as a researcher or a clinician, I think this could resonate very well. And especially for next episode, we're planning to talk about this early a bit of history of pain, not like a classical um uh, not, not not like history on history but i think it was just trying to find why did things happen over time and why are we here now and I, I, my personal view would be that every stage every step has been important to get a better mm. understanding because i think that's the that's the the research method basically um we may find some reasons why and some forces that may have slowed down progress to some extent but i think especially from the early work from patrick wall um would be good to mention i guess yeah, yeah. Uh, and some work to understand especially when you jump in the field right now and you're interested in pain i think this could be a really nice way to get introduced by by why things are why are we here now and what happened before so we don't have to jump in the same mistakes again uh, that's what i've learned from history and trying to mm -hmm. educate yourself about that and making sure we can move forward um, yeah, with the knowledge yeah. of what we've done and where we've been so far yeah uh, it sometimes it sometimes feels that you know we're making the same round of mistakes with a different uh, you know certainly different treatment sometimes i've just finished watching uh, a couple of the the miniseries that are on at the moment about the opioid epidemics, and I can't help but think, wow, are we making some fresh mistakes with new molecules or devices? Mm. Uh, so it's not like history never repeats, but but I agree that if we if we really, I think, back in science to help guide us, then we're going to be progressing way more often than we're regressing. I think yeah all right so for next episode i'm gonna get a bit of history and uh, our understanding so thank you Lars. i think this has been very helpful uh again thank if you've got you. questions uh leave us a note uh, leave us a question at mail at mastersessions.academy mail at mastersessions.academy and we will take your questions on board in uh, in future episodes we're actually we're looking forward to hear from you so uh, any feedback is welcome thank you Luz. have a great day thank you Bart. and ciao uh, dudes just see you